Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The utterly traditional two segments today, we'll hear from James Bamford, who's been writing about U.S. intelligence for four decades. He'll talk about Israeli interference in elections around the world, particularly their collusion with Donald Trump in 2016. And then the historian and faculty union president Donna Murch will explain why the Rutgers teaching staff is on the verge of a strike. For years, we've been hearing about alleged Russian collusion with the Trump campaign in 2016 but repeated investigation has turned up no evidence that it actually happened. Now we've got good evidence of a collusion that did happen, Israel's with the Trump campaign. James Bamford, who first became known for his book The Puzzle Palace in 1982 about the National Security Agency, has a cover story in The Nation magazine about that topic, which has attracted virtually no interest from U.S. media. And it's not just the U.S. Israel interferes with elections all over the world. It's also been actively working to sabotage the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement in the U.S. James Bamford. This uh, piece in the nation is an excerpt from a book that's just out. Could you uh, talk a little bit about the book before we get to the substance of the article? Sure. Uh, the book is Spy Fail. It's the look at the U.S. counterintelligence system and how, how it's failed over the past half dozen years. I look at how the FBI has been infiltrated by Chinese moles, how uh, Various uh, foreign governments have been able to plant uh, spies in the U.S. without them being caught. So it, it takes a very intense look at both the U.S. intelligence community and the counterintelligence community and how it's failed to um, come up with uh, spies when they're coming into the country. What do you attribute these failures to? Well, it's a combination of factors. The first one is total incompetence. Uh, for example, the um, FBI had a mole in, in its uh, counterintelligence organization from the late 70s until early 2001, a Russian mole, uh, Robert Hansen. They never caught him for 20 years. And then he was finally caught in 2001. And less than a month later, the Chinese were able to, uh, Chinese government was able to plant a mole into the FBI. And he was there for another 15 years or so. He was just caught uh, last year, maybe two years ago, and he's still awaiting trial. You know, while the um, FBI was searching for two years uh, for Russian collusion, which they never found uh, in the Trump campaign, all that time there were two spies in Hillary Clinton's campaign uh, from the United Arab Emirates. They were there the entire campaign and uh, paying millions and millions of dollars to get up close and personal with her for a long time. And they weren't caught till more than a year after the campaign. And the cover story of the Nation magazine, which just came out, is uh, on another chapter I wrote about. And that's how Israel had uh, infiltrated or actually uh, collaborated with the uh, Trump campaign to try to throw the election in, in favor of uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's uh, causes and so forth. Okay, let's talk some about Israel. It looks like election interference is, uh, and such uh, is quite the growth industry in Israel, isn't it? Well, apparently, because there was a huge international investigation that was just completed a few weeks ago. Um, it was done by journalists in 30 different countries, uh, some of the most prestigious newspapers and magazines, including Haratz in Israel, Le Monde in um, France, uh, Der Spiegel in Germany, uh, The Observer and The Guardian in England and so forth. Uh, and they did this uh, enormous eight-month investigation. What they concluded was that uh, Israel is basically a world center for interfering in, in elections around the world. Somebody is saying 33 presidential-level campaigns, of which 27 were successful. That's a big number and quite a success rate. They were extremely successful, and uh, they used all kinds of uh, disinformation and phony news sites and and so forth. It was an extremely intensive investigation. They used undercover people, and uh, some of these organizations in Israel uh, that were involved were heavily connected to the Israeli government. 
Now, there also seem to be a lot of uh, private uh, sort of shadowy intelligence or groups like what, Fifth Dimension, Psy Group, uh, Archimedes Group. Who staffs these things and what do they do? Well, they're mostly staffed by former uh, Mossad and, and uh, Unit 8200 personnel. Unit 8200 is the um, equivalent of uh, the National Security Agency. It's the NSA for Israel. So uh, these people get out. They have a, a huge amount of knowledge about how to do disinformation and use avatars and so forth. These companies do a enormously good business in, in uh, using fraud in elections, which is why the uh, journalists from 30 different countries got together to do this eight-month investigation, because there were so many indications that Israel was doing this. The problem is in the United States, Israel gets ignored whenever they do something like this. So Although this was covered in newspapers all over the world, especially in Europe and in the Middle East, there was barely any mention in the United States about the uh, about this investigation. So what kind of techniques do they use? Well, the key techniques are using fraud on the Internet. They put uh, uh, phony websites down, phony Facebook bots and so forth. So they use a lot of technical means to trick people into believing that the candidate they're supporting is the best candidate to vote for, obviously, and that the other candidate is a terrible candidate. So these people read what they think are news items or what they think is a news site, and they aren't. They're just made up in Israel and uh, distributed on the internet, and uh, that's how these uh, companies are able to win elections for their clients. Okay, and I'll talk some about the the relation to the Trump campaign. A key uh, or portal to all this was an FBI search warrant. Uh, could you describe that document? What was in it? What what you found out from it? Well, uh, as everybody knows, the Mueller uh, investigation was launched to look into Russian collusion uh, in the Trump campaign. The Russians had previously hacked into the Hillary Clinton and the DNC, gotten a lot of emails and. Uh, made them public. So there was a scramble to find out if the Trump campaign was actually colluding with Russia or vice versa, Russia was colluding with the, with the Trump campaign. So the Mueller investigation went on for two years. They concluded that there was no collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russian government. But they were also looking for other uh, countries who may be colluding. And in 2018, they had an indication that there was a an agent, a secret agent from Israel that had come in and was involved in the Trump campaign, trying to use intelligence in order to get Trump to win the campaign and to do things that the Netanyahu government wanted him to do. So the, the FBI began looking into it, and they got a search warrant for this uh, agent's communications. And what they found were loads of emails back and forth between the Trump campaign and uh, and this Israeli agent words like uh, we want to intervene into the uh, into the campaign to, to help Trump win the election uh, they use the word intervene in the uh, in the email so uh, you know there's no question what they wanted and they were adamant on having Trump win the election so they could get what they wanted now, the political background at the moment was there was pressure coming from the Obama administration, the so-called quartet, the US, UN, EU, and Russia. There's supposedly going to be coordinated pressure to uh, urge the Israelis to ease up with the Palestinians, right? This, so this is something that uh, Netanyahu dreaded. And not only just ease up on the Palestinians, uh, what the uh, Obama administration really wanted, and, and John Kerry was the lead on this, uh, on, on this effort, what they really wanted was a resolution to the Jerusalem issue. The goal is to divide uh, Jerusalem between the Palestinians and, and Israel. That's what uh, the Obama administration wanted to do, get a resolution finally to get a, uh, an agreement on Jerusalem. Netanyahu didn't want any kind of agreement. He wanted to keep Jerusalem 100% Israeli. So that was one of the key things that he wanted uh, Trump to guarantee for this help that they were giving to the Trump campaign. They wanted Trump to guarantee that the uh, U.S. would recognize Israel, uh, recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and move the uh, U.S. embassy. And um, in the end, that's what they got. This uh, agent you're talking about is a guy named what, Isaac Molo? They uh, redacted the agent's name in the uh, in the document. Isaac Molo uh, sort of fits a lot of the 
pattern. He's a lawyer. Uh, he gets involved in a lot of very secretive uh, uh, operations for uh, Netanyahu. He's actually related to Netanyahu. And uh, there's been a number of reports in the uh, Israeli newspapers about how he goes on these secret missions. He could have possibly been um, this person who was uh, redacted from the FBI warrant and affidavit. But an there is another clue in that uh, this person who was uh, working for Netanyahu for all these years, Isaac Moho, uh, was also Netanyahu's key person dealing with the whole issue of the Palestinians. He was the key person that Netanyahu would use to deal with John Kerry. And at one point during this uh, many months uh, long involvement of the Israeli agent and the Trump campaign, there was an email from the um, agent basically saying, uh, I have to go to uh, Rome for a very quick meeting with the prime minister on a very important matter. And, you know, if you check and find out what was going on in Rome that time, it was uh, exactly that. It was a meeting between John Kerry and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu discussing issues involving the quartet and, uh, and the resolution of, of Jerusalem. And then right after the meeting, the uh, agent flew right back to Washington to, again, continue his meetings with uh, Trump's people, primarily Roger Stone and uh, Jerome Corsi. Stone was very close to Trump, and, and uh, that's who the agent was using to um, get to Trump was uh, Roger Stone. Stone and Corsi seem, as they say, like pretty colorful characters. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I trust them with secret missions. Does this just say something about the quality of the uh, of the Trump circle, that they would uh, pick these two guys to be their conduit to the big man? Yeah, uh, it, it actually makes a fair amount of sense. Uh, sense. I mean, this person uh, would be going in cold. They wouldn't know who the secret agent is beforehand. So he's got to have a way to go in. He's not going to go in through the front door of the campaign. He's got to go in through a back door. Roger Stone was really the best back door because um, he had this uh, inside track with, with Trump. As I explained in the article and in the book, a number of Trump's associates said that uh, he, Trump and Roger Stone had numerous confidential conversations uh, throughout the campaign. He'd been associated with Trump for a very long time. He was one of his closest associates. So, And Corsi is very close to Stone, and Corsi has some very close connections in Israel. So based on the uh, affidavit from the FBI, that's how this began. I'm speaking with James Bamford, the veteran journalist specializing in U.S. intelligence. And now there's another character, I don't know how to pronounce it, Saki Hanegbi. Yeah. Who is he and how did, what role did he play in this? Well, one of the things that uh, this agent did was he brought a number of officials from Israel over to meet with uh, Trump. Some of these meetings never took place because uh, they demanded too much secrecy. At one point, uh, Trump was going to meet with uh, one of the officials, and then he found out that there was going to be a lieutenant general with him. So uh, he wanted nobody to be there at the meeting except for Trump and the agent. And then another time, the agent uh, found that uh, Corsi was going to be there, and he didn't want to meet with Corsi there. So they wanted extreme secrecy. But during that time, uh, there were several officials that the agent brought over. One of them was this uh, Israeli official. Uh, his first name is spelled T-Z-A-C-H-I, however that's pronounced, and his last name is Hegjabi. And he had previously been the top Israeli official in charge of intelligence, Mossad and, and the other intelligence agencies. And he was married to an American and uh, he was a minister without portfolio. In the affidavit, it doesn't mention his name. However, it says that the person was uh, the Israeli minister uh, without portfolio. And there was only one minister without por portfolio at that time. And this person, uh, Hanigbi, uh, happened to be in the U.S. at the same time this meeting was going to take place. The Israelis, one of the things they contributed was they seemed to know the timing of the release of all the emails. They knew about the email releases through Guccifer and, uh, and WikiLeaks. How did they know? And what were they trying to do with these uh, leaks to the Trump campaign? Well, all along, this had been a quid pro quo. 
the uh, Israelis, Netanyahu, wanted a number of uh, things from the Trump campaign. Trump was already going to give them the uh, withdrawing from the Iran nuclear agreement, which is uh, one of the reasons Netanyahu wanted Trump to win. And uh, the other thing was recognition of, of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. So in return, what the uh, secret agent was passing on to Korzai and the Trump people was uh, details that had never come out about the fact that Russia had hacked into the Hillary Clinton and DNC emails. What was extraordinary when reading these uh, FBI documents is it says that about a month before anybody else in the world ever knew about the Russian hacking into the DNC and Hillary Clinton's campaign by a fictitious person named Lucifer 2.0, who was actually a Russian agent. Before anybody else in the world outside of Russia knew about that, the Israelis knew about it. And they were passing that information on to the Trump campaign. They were passing it on to uh, Roger Stone. And the way that the FBI words it is that a month before anybody else in the world had ever heard of Lucifer 2.0 or a couple of the other words that were would eventually come out involved in this hacking. Roger Stone was was uh, Googling these words. How could he possibly have known uh, of Lucifer 2.0 or um, these other keywords unless he was told them? And uh, actually, he started Googling them the very day that he talked to the Israeli agent. So the conclusion was that the Israeli agent was passing on intelligence uh, they picked up from uh, eavesdropping on the Russians. The Israelis have a very sophisticated eavesdropping capability, Unit 8200. Russia was always one of their big targets, so um, they apparently discovered that Russia was eavesdropping on Hillary Clinton and the DNC, but rather than passing it on to President Obama, which is what you would expect an ally to do, they instead were passing it on to the uh, opposition, the Republican opposition, uh, the Trump campaign. So, um, it's extraordinary that here they, they find this out and they're passing it on to uh, the opposition in the U.S. in order to interfere in the U.S. election. You say that one of these private intelligence groups, a SAI group, conducts operations against BDS supporters in the U.S. Do you have any more detail on what they do? Well, I wrote a lot about it in, in my book. I didn't put it in the, uh, in the Nation article, but it's, uh, I, I have a whole chapter on these things in, in the book. And SAI group is a, a private Israeli group that was formed by a person who was very experienced in the military psychological warfare activity, and he formed this private intelligence group called Psy Group. There were a couple of things they did. Uh, one of them was they came to the U.S. Uh, they were hired uh, apparently by the Israeli government um, or working with the Israeli government secretly in order to uh, attack supporters of the groups that were opposing Israeli apartheid and so forth, the uh, boycott groups, the um, BDS. So they came in, they were spying on them, and this all came out in, in uh, public documents uh, uh, several years ago, actually. Uh, they came in, they were spying on them, they were doing covert operations, and their entire um, operational plan became public. And, and so this is not a question whether they were doing it, it's question of uh, why there wasn't any U.S. FBI arrests of people that were involved in these things. So they, it went on for more than a year, and they were eavesdropping on people. They were harassing them uh, on behalf of the Israeli government to uh, get them from supporting the BDS movement and, uh, and the people who are against Israeli apartheid and the, uh, their actions against the Palestinians. Now, whether or not uh, these Israeli actions had any effect on the outcome of the election, so it's hard to say, um, but um, what Stone and Corsair were doing were certainly crimes, right, under U.S. law? Well, certainly, yeah. I mean, they were acting as uh, agents of a foreign government. It's uh, part of the criminal code, uh, Section 951. Very clearly spells out that you're not supposed to act as an agent of a foreign government. That's exactly what they were doing by... Uh, introducing a secret agent and getting material from a secret agent into a uh, presidential campaign. Matter of fact, the uh, the FBI document laid out a number of potential crimes that the uh, people involved could have been charged with. Uh, and the question is, why weren't they charged? Uh, uh, among them were a violation of the foreign contribution ban, uh, which involves uh, 
foreigners of illegally giving money to a campaign or anything of value. It doesn't even have to be money. It could be like uh, uh, these uh, emails uh, that they intercepted from the Russian communications. Another charge was aiding and abetting. Uh, another one was conspiracy. Another one was wire fraud. And then attempt uh, attempted conspiracy to commit wire fraud. And, uh, and then there was uh, another charge, uh, unauthorized access to a protected computer, which uh, pretty much indicates that they suspected that the uh, Israeli agent or, or people he was working with were involved in tapping into, illegally tapping into U.S. computers. Your story has been out for a while. The book has been out for a while. Um, and I haven't really seen much <laughs> of the media picking up on it. Uh, what, if anything, do you make of that? Well, that's the way it is. They, <laughs> when it comes to Israel, there's almost no uh, attention paid to, uh, to the uh, things that that they do that are uh, illegal and affecting the United States a lot of times. So there was very, almost no coverage at all of the uh, Psy Group attacking U.S. personnel, even though that it came out, I think, in one publication. Uh, um, I think the New Yorker had an article about it, and that was about it. And then uh, there was absolutely no, there was a total news blackout on the uh, more recent um, 30 organization journalistic investigation into Israeli involvement in, in elections, uh, trying to throw elections. So here you have all these countries in Europe and the Middle East investigating Israel for eight months and coming up with a massive report showing exactly what they were doing in terms of illegal spying. And there wasn't any pickup at all in any U.S. newspaper or news organization in the United States. That's just the way it works. And, uh, you know, a lot of people said, you're risking a lot by writing about all this stuff in a book, but that's what I do. You know, I, I wrote three books on the National Security Agency, and uh, they originally... And lived to tell a tale. <laughs> well, they threatened me with prosecution twice on the first book. So, you know, I don't write to uh, make people happy. I write to tell people what's going on. Okay, and finally, Bibi's back in office. Trump is running again. If both of them manage to stay out of jail, uh, what can we expect uh, as we approach the election? As I said in the uh, Nation cover story, was that uh, uh, it's deja vu all over again because here you got uh, Netanyahu back in office, you got Trump again running for office, it's just as it was in 2016. Once again, there was there's no effort to try to rein in Israel when it comes to uh, illegal activities in, in the United States. So it could be a, a repeat. Um, you know, the, the, the one thing that's different this time is that Israel is going through uh, enormous chaos because Netanyahu is uh, trying to um, basically bring fascism to uh, the Israeli government uh, with his um, proposals to override uh, the Supreme Court in a lot of areas. And so that's brought out hundred, uh, you know, tens or a hundred thousand of uh, protesters in Israel uh, ironically, there's almost no comment about uh, uh, doing anything about the Palestinians. Uh, that seems to be a common denominator that whichever way it goes, they're going to continue the occupation. So it, it, the protests have very little impact on, on their lives in the future, unfortunately. But that's the, uh, that's the change in dynamics. And it, it would make Netanyahu far more powerful this time around than he was last time around because uh, now he's got a uh, this huge right wing coalition behind him and uh, once again he would want uh, Trump back in office. That was James Bamford, author of a cover story in the Nation about Israel's collusion with the Trump campaign in 2016. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood. Back after a musical break.
Some of Letter to an Old Poet from the new Boy Genius album. Connoisseurs will notice the allusion to an old Boy Genius song. The original lyric, I Want to Be Emaciated, has been changed to I Want to Be Happy. A rare bit of hope in this world. Next, why is the Rutgers University faculty on the verge of a strike? What does the union's strategy offer as a lesson for labor activists elsewhere? And beyond the issues at stake at one institution, what are the broader political implications of this confrontation? Sometimes I hear people say that academic politics and academic labor struggles are somehow peripheral to the real issues, whatever they are. This strikes me as very wrong. The right takes universities very seriously. They fund institutes that spread their worldview and are trying to control what's taught in classrooms. They hate campuses because they're often where people learn to question the world they live in and act to change it. They want to turn universities into vocational academies where students only learn things that are useful to business. Here with a look at the Rutgers situation is Donna Murch, a historian and president of the New Brunswick chapter of that university's American Association of University Professors branch. She is the author of Asada Taught Me, State Violence, Racial Capitalism, and the Movement for Black Lives, and Living for the City, Migration, Education, and the Rise of the Black Panther Party in Oakland. Donna Murch. Where are you now? Are you on the verge of a strike? Yeah, we're absolutely on the verge of a strike. At this point, I think it is almost certain. And what are the uh, principal issues? What's brought you to this pass? Well, we've been over 200 days without a contract. Our contract ended at the end of June 2022. And our president, Jonathan Holloway, who became president of Rutgers on July 1st, 2020, has taken a surprisingly hardline stance on the union. And for months and months, he chose... David Cohen, who was Chris Christie's head of labor, who's now become the lead negotiator and special counsel to the president on union affairs. He's a really hardcore union buster, and it's clear to us that he's the one giving the Holloway administration its prime legal advice. For months, they wouldn't even come to the table, and they have just refuse to even consider giving graduate students a raise, as well as really pushing against almost every single demand of the union. Why do you think they're taking such a hard line? The histories of the individuals involved matter. And one of the things that would surprise people a lot, which is that we're talking about Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, a deep blue democratic state under a democratic governor. Who's not a bad guy as these things go, right? I don't think so. I mean, he has the reputation as being one of the most pro-labor governors. But in order to stand understand what's happening now with the Holloway administration, I think you actually have to go back about 12 years to what happened after the financial crisis in 2008, which is that when the financial crisis hit, I think that the unions had already negotiated a deal, but they cracked open their contracts in order to renegotiate those deals. And then Chris Christie was elected and the contracts were cracked open again, and then they were set aside. And one of the strange histories of Rutgers in New Jersey in this period is that after Chris Christie was governor, he saw Rutgers as core to a strategy of really pushing back and fighting all the public sector unions in New Jersey. And Rutgers was seen as the first battleground. So that was a period in our history which actually led to the rise of a new leadership in the union. But it was a really terrible defeat for our union. Christie had a special uh, animus for teachers' unions, right? So were you part of that? Yes, absolutely. So the famous quote, about Chris Christie is that in 2015, he said that the teachers unions deserve a punch to the face. He saw himself as the right wing of the Republican Party who was going to make war on labor, like Scott Walker in Wisconsin. And the person who is the chief negotiator currently was his head of labor relations. You can draw a direct line to the Christie administration. It's almost as if we're living in some kind of historical time warp in which both our chief legal officer, John Hoffman, and our chief 
negotiator for labor came out of the Christie administration. So while Christie's fortunes have been destroyed, his people live on inside Rutgers, which is one of the great public universities and also historically left universities. Jonathan Holloway, when he was elected, I'm sorry, when he was selected, he was uh, Rutgers' first black president. He had served his upper level administration at Yale and then for three years as provost for Northwestern. So he had almost no experience in public university systems apart from a short period of being an assistant professor in the UC system. So he comes to Rutgers and he becomes an absolute celebrant of the status quo and in fact takes David Cohen and elevates his position more so than his predecessor. So that's a long answer, but Holloway affirmed the people that were already in power and then stepped it up a notch. Who appointed him? What's the governance process for the university? Uh, He was initially brought into Rutgers by Robert Barchi, who was the president who presided over the merger, the largest higher education merger in history, who was thought of as being quite conservative, possibly even a Republican. And he's the one who hired both John Hoffman and David Cohen. But Jonathan Holloway kept them on and really, I think, did not feel comfortable challenging the structures of governance. Now, are they pleading poverty? What's the university's position? Um, They're having a very hard time pleading poverty, but they're trying it anyway. They're claiming that their loss of -of out-of-state tuition because the number of international students, I think, uh, dropped by 25% during the pandemic, that they are forecasting budget shortfalls. But they have been forecasting budget shortfalls for the last three years. And contrary to their claims that no one is taking seriously, Rutgers has the largest unrestricted reserves that it's ever had in its history. And whether it's the bond ratings provided by Moody or by its own numbers and self-assessment, apart from union negotiations, they're actually very flush. Your union has grown into a formidable uh, force, right? Give us the history of how it came to be such a uh, militant and uh, impressive organization. Well, we have one of the oldest faculty unions. It was founded in 1970, so we're in its 53rd year history. One of the things that makes it unusual, I think this change happened in the 1990s, that it's not only a faculty union. So it includes tenure stream faculty, non-tenure track lecturers. And in the 90s, it incorporated graduate students. We also have EOF counselors and postdocs. So we have a wide range of different job categories. The Rutgers Union has always been quite strong, but it has especially grown in strength over the last 10 to 15 years. And as I was describing earlier, it was in the, I'd say around somewhere between 2010 and 2014, there was a real crisis in the leadership because they had the cost of living raises taken out and they had the weakest contract they've ever had. We even had forced furloughs in that period. And when that happened, I think Rutgers had always had to balance different forces inside the union explicitly left and socialist versus liberal. But that collapse of the contract provided an opportunity for long-term organizers inside the union that really wanted to turn it into a true left union that would fight for both race and gender, economic justice, and chart a different path. So the election of Trump was very important part of this history. Because at Rutgers, given the demographics of New Jersey, the enormous numbers of Muslim students and students from all over the world and immigrants, that Trump's election was particularly devastating. But it was the union that led the fight against that. So when the Muslim ban was issued, we had a giant march of three or 4,000 people through New Brunswick. And that drew a lot of people into the leadership, including me, because it demonstrated that the union was going to fight political battles thinking at it both the local and the national level, and that it wasn't just a bread and butter service union. Uh, And now what are the uh, positions of the two sides here? What is the university demanding? What is the union demanding? So the union has a series of transformational demands. 
And the first is that we decided to challenge New Jersey labor law by running a card campaign. Currently, the part-time lecturers are in a separate union. And we had the PTLs do a card campaign. The PTLs, let me put it this way, the PTLs did a card campaign and there was collaboration between both units. And uh, they won a majority of people agreed that they would like to merge with the full-time faculty and grad union. So one of our transformational demands is to allow the merger of our bargaining units. And most importantly, that we have a coalition in which the core demands are having part-time lecturers paid with fractional appointments that each individual class would be linked to the pay for non-tenure track lecturers. So this would be a shift, a structural shift, rather than being simply the most precarious and contingent with set fee per class, that their pay is directly linked to lecturers. So that's at the top of the union demand, and it would be utterly transformative. Also, winning healthcare for part-time faculty, and very importantly, living wages for graduate students, support for students who were slowed down by COVID, and giving the union the right to bargain over stipends. So it's very important being in the Delaware Valley between New York City and Philadelphia that graduate students be paid a living wage. So currently they're making roughly $30,000 a year. Our contract would start, go back to July 1st, 2022. And it would start with an increase of $7,000. And over the, the four years of the contract would end in the low 40s. So graduate student demands are at the very top, as well as that piece that I mentioned. These are wages for graduate student teaching assistants and research assistants. But currently, the union doesn't have the power to bargain over stipends because graduate fellows are not recognized by management as part of the union. So that is a structural demand that is important. Other demands include racial justice. We fought and won in our contract, a pay equity program in 2019. And in this contract, providing support for uh, historically underrepresented minorities through graduate fellowships is at the top of our list. Finally, we have bargaining for the common good demands, which affect the communities the campuses are located in, as well as the undergraduates. And those include a $15 minimum wage for undergraduate workers, rent stabilization, a rent freeze on all Rutgers rental properties, and a forgiveness of fees and fines that are preventing students from receiving their degrees. I'm speaking with the historian Donna Murch, who is also president of the Rutgers New Brunswick Faculty Union. Now, I'm guessing the university's response is uh, to hell with all that. Pretty much. Interestingly enough, the only thing that the administration has been willing to really talk about are wage increases focused on the tenure track faculty. So their most recent demand was were 12% increase in wages over four years. They refused to even acknowledge the grad demands, much less to provide a counteroffer. And in their most recent counteroffer, they're offering, I think it's it works out to be roughly a $1,200 to $1,300 raise per individual course. But they are literally not even responding to any demands outside that framework. I would guess, uh, aside from the economic dimension, this is also a divide and conquer strategy. It is. But what's really interesting about it is that it's a profound misreading of the union. And to be honest, they've had a lot of time to learn about what the union wants. We have been, I'd say for the last decade, fighting for the idea of protecting the most vulnerable which means that tenure-track faculty who have job security and are paid comparatively well to other job categories use the power of tenure in order to fight for the lowest paid. And this has been true certainly since the pandemic and it had its roots earlier than that, in which we had a work-share program 
funded by the Department of Labor, in which the tenure track faculty took furloughs, voluntary furloughs, as a way to negotiate stopping layoffs. So the Holloway administration has plenty of time to see the union in motion. And it's interesting. It feels like their playbook is coming from, honestly, a different era. And that this is also why they are failing miserably and we are moving towards a strike because they think that by offering the tenure track faculty raises that that will help resolve the strike. And it's just the opposite. We are infuriated about their unwillingness to respond to reasonable demands based in equity that are about living wages in a time of runaway inflation, cost of living increases. Now, you'd think some of these fissures would break open, full-time versus part-time, well-paid versus not so well-paid. What is your organizing strategy? How do you keep all uh, the solidarity together? Solidarity is a process, and it's something, it's like a muscle that needs to be organized. And I think that this is true for Rutgers, but it's true for many of the victories in higher education over the past year, that COVID was so devastating to the university ecosystem. 700,000 people lost their jobs. And this was so true in the case of Rutgers because we're so close to New York. COVID hit like a storm and they started laying off 5% of our workforce. And when those people were laid off, they lost their health insurance and their tuition benefits. So imagine a situation where people are dying and being injured and hospitalized. You know, we all remember the ventilators in that first six months and year. And so the horror of watching what the university did, it really did radicalize us. And it provided an opportunity to develop an industrial strategy, a kind of 21st century industrial union of trying to broaden the breadth of the union in terms of different job categories, hence the PTLI, PTL organizing campaign. I will say we have won, and the university has agreed to it, the incorporation of BHSNJ, which is the medical workers union, into our own union. So there's really been a kind of transformation, even structurally, of the union since COVID started. What's exciting about this moment is that labor is moving faster than management. And that's true at Rutgers. It's also true of the grad student organizing. In our case, they're using a playbook that feels like it's 30 years old, And what I'm shocked by is that you would think that the president of Rutgers would understand that graduate programs are core to the identity of any research university. So the grad demands are not only central to the graduate students themselves, but also to the tenured faculty, because now that we have ten dollars to $15,000 shortfall with all the institutions surrounding us, it's going to be very hard for us to maintain those programs. We were already struggling because of the differential resources between public and private. So I do think it's a profound misreading, and I will say that will work in our favor. What are your relations with the, um, you know, the non-teaching staff, the uh, groundskeepers, clerical staff, that sort of thing? Well, that's another coalition that was really built through the pandemic. So the Coalition of Rutgers Unions goes back to the aughts. And it was a kind of loose federation where different bargaining units would talk to each other. There'd be certain moments where they would come together, like bargaining over health care. But it was in 2020 with the mass layoffs that really Todd Wilson was president of our union, and he was key in developing the really deep connections between the different unions, figuring out ways how to strengthen them, to build relationships, to commit to weekly meetings where all the different union leadership and membership would come together from the different unions. So I would say the union coalition is as tight as it has ever been, and it includes 15,000 people, including medical interns, dining hall workers, and administrative staff, especially. So it's not only the faculty grad contract that is up, but also the staff contract and multiple other unions. And we are actively working together and coordinating with one another. This sort of thing is happening at campuses around the country. I mean, you're a big and prominent example, but uh, you know, there are a whole lot of universities that are really trying to break their unions, it seems, and a whole lot of uh, graduate students, uh, contingent faculty, really trying to fight back. Um, how do you see this fits into the larger picture in American higher ed? The public sector has much higher rates of unionization than the private sector. 
But as I've learned, you know, through doing union organizing, the public sector is vulnerable in particular ways that there's a history of injunctions being used against public sector unions like teachers and nurses. And so in New Jersey, there's not a statute that makes public sector strikes illegal, but they have been used against teachers. Interestingly enough, this is not true in Pennsylvania, which was able to pass protective legislation, which is something we'd like to do in our future. So in terms of thinking about the repression, we have contradictory things happening at once. We have really, I don't know if I would call it unprecedented, but I would call it incredibly important attack on the university by the organized right which relates to the movement for Black Lives, trying to stop the teaching of what they call critical race theory, but is really just the teaching of the American past. So this is happening. And of course, teachers unions are at the center of that fight with CRT, because what is the leverage that they're using to attack these forms of education? It is the punishment and firing of instructors who teach these subjects. So people don't always think of it, but, you know, the teachers unions in Florida and the rest of the country are really leading the battle against this. This is one of the reasons that we are so angry at our president, Jonathan Holloway, which is that he is strengthening. Everyone is watching Rutgers and by him threatening to use an injunction and criminalize our strike and break the union. This sends a signal and strengthens the possibility for that being done all over the country. And I can't help but feel that when you think about this longer history of Chris Christie saying the American Federation of Teachers deserves a punch in the face in 2015, there is a line between this history that happened in New Jersey and also what is happening in Florida. Sometimes it seems like the American ruling class is basically giving up on the idea of public higher education. Certainly the elite institutions are doing fine, but no, Rutgers is a very distinguished public institution, and uh, they they really want to kick it around, and less distinguished public institutions, they really want to put the squeeze on. How do you read the politics uh, that this fits into? Well, one of the major ways that I read it is really the kind of looting of the state. Years ago, And I thought of this actually when I saw what Chris Christie was doing in 2015, but I first became really cognizant of it in the 90s, that the kinds of violence that was being directed at K through 12 education, the attempt to dismantle public education, I think professors often see themselves as particular rare, you know, a kind of rarefied thing. And I think they're class identifications that made them think that they could not be subject to this. But the prehistory of this is charterization, privatization, the really the migration of the corporate sector into the public sector and looking at as a site of really colonization and making money. And that is what's happening at Rutgers, too, that the tenured faculty and other workers in the university have less and less authority. There's a metastasy of the upper level administration where they're constantly hiring lawyers and corporate people who know nothing about higher education, but see the universe, the public university as a site to make money, to build buildings, to purchase real estate, to provide contracts to substandard software systems. So I think that the shift in governance, there was never faculty governance in the university, but there was a greater possibility for faculty influence in the administrative level that has largely ended now. And it's being run by MBAs and corporate people who are not interested in higher education. I think they really see it as an opportunity for a market and for them to get high paid jobs. Finally, your work on the Black Panthers, though, shows that there's a real political dimension to this, right? The the Black Panthers... You know, emerged out of uh, a college in Oakland, right? The the right and even the the center just doesn't like the political role the university plays in the society. I think that that's true. And it helps explain the scale of attack that we're seeing. What started in Florida is now being leveraged across the country. I have to say, though, at Rutgers, you know, our current president is an African-American historian. His first book was called Confronting the Veil. And it was about Abraham Harris, Oliver Cox, and these other Black left social scientists who cared about class and certainly cared about universities. 
And so looking at the story of Rutgers and Jonathan Holloway, I think that it's um, instructive that it's not only about the attack of what we think of as the right on the university. The public good and public institutions are being looted and are there's a portion of it that is really about corporate and class interests. And then there's another piece that's being weaponized by the right. But forces that we wouldn't think of as being aligned with each other, I think are in loose ways, meaning anti-union forces are strengthening the mechanisms that can in turn be used by the right to attack the university as a site of learning and social justice organizing and especially racial justice organizing. So things that don't obviously seem aligned with each other, I think they're brought together in their anti-labor stance, whether that's Ron DeSantis in Florida or it's what we're seeing at Rutgers with literally Chris Christie's people who were part of this attempt to attack teachers' unions now being the true leadership of Rutgers that a historian of the African-American past has aligned himself with. I would say for me, that is the most disappointing part of our struggle, but it has also created an opportunity about how to build a multiracial, multi-job sector coalition inside a union that has the particular strength to fight this kind of vision. That was Donna Murch, Associate Professor of History at Rutgers, the State University of New Jersey, and President of the New Brunswick Chapter of the Rutgers AAUP-AFT. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Since we're coming upon Easter, let me indulge a seasonal obsession listening to Bach's St. Matthew Passion. Here's an aria from Towards the End, sung by the great Dietrich Fischer Dieskau with the Munich Bach Orchestra under Karl Richter. It's a strange sentiment he's expressing. Mache dich mein Herz rein, ich will Jesum selbst begraben. Make yourself pure, my heart. I want to bury Jesus within me. Till next week. Bye. Oh